This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him, And to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word, that you have revealed to us who you are, who we are. You've revealed to us all the dimensions of our so great salvation, and you have given us clear instruction in terms of our spiritual life. Father, it is as we come to study your word that we are continuously reminded of your grace. We're reminded of the magnificence of all that you have given us in Christ, the riches that we have in Christ, and coming to understand how we access and utilize uh, that which you have given us so freely at the instant of our salvation, that nothing depended on us, but everything depended upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in him goes beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Yet so often we fail to fully comprehend it or to access it or use it on a day-to-day basis. Father, we pray that you would challenge us from the teaching of your word today that we may come uh, face-to-face with the areas in our life that we need to deal with by means of the Holy Spirit and that we may be challenged to pursue excellence in our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the themes that has often been distorted or misunderstood, some cases abused, in the teachings of the Scripture on the Christian life has to do with this concept of being crucified with Christ. Now, that is a theme that we've touched on in the last couple of lessons as I've gone through uh, passages, not just in the Colossians 2, uh, 15 and following, and on into chapter 3 of Colossians, but trying to connect this to other things that are said in the Scripture from passages such as uh, what Jesus says, that if we want to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. Uh, other passages that ta- Paul uses talk about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the sin nature, reckoning ourselves dead to sin. And so often when we read these things or hear these things, either due to an over-familiarity with the passages, we don't really stop and think about what they mean, or too often they have been presented within the context of a legalistic approach to the Christian life 
that leaves us recognizing that it's uh, just a, another superficial uh, understanding of the Christian life. It's a wrong understanding of the Christian life, or uh, it is just another kind of gimmick that really doesn't uh, seem to work in our life, and we're still fighting the same battles that we always fought. I think that it's important to understand these passages because they all connect. Another problem that we have that often comes across in, in, in this study, kind of study is that too often under, I think, a rather, rather narrow, restricted view of, of the pastoral ministry or the pulpit ministry more precisely or what it means to uh, teach or preach expositionally is that pastors tend to focus on just what a particular set of verses says without recognizing that that's like one piece of a jigsaw puzzle or one piece of a mosaic. And you, you really need to understand all of the uh, other pieces in the puzzle or the mosaic and how they all relate together in order to get the picture because the scriptures are not written like a systematic theology where you, uh, Paul is writing a letter to one group or another and says, this is everything you need to know about the Christian life in these next eight verses. And here are nine principles or ten principles. We have in the scripture, uh, as it were, pictures, little snapshots in Romans 6, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, 1 John, uh, other passages, Ephesians 3, uh, 4, 5, little different snapshots that all have to be put together in order to uh, really understand everything that we've been given in Christ and how we are to think. Because the one thing that comes across again and again in these passages is the fact that, that the writers of Scripture, whether it's Paul or whether it's James or whether it's Peter, all come back to saying words like, know this, understand this, reckon yourselves dead to sin, as Paul says in, in Romans uh, 6.11, which really means to think in these terms consistently. So how do we put this together, which is what I'm trying to do in this, in this uh, uh, series, as we look at the, the real heart of Colossians, and that's these verses between that come between Colossians uh, about 2, uh, 5, or 6, uh, going down to the beginning of, of uh, chapter 4. But one question I want to address before we really get, get into the text itself this morning or the topic this morning, which sets it up, is this question of what is legalism? What exactly do we mean when we use this term legalism? I've heard this used all kinds of ways in, in my Christian life over the last uh, 50 years or so, and you'll hear somebody say, uh, say something, and then somebody else say, oh, well, they're just being legalistic. Well, what does that mean? Sometimes they're not being legalistic, but sometimes people think that any time somebody comes along and says, you're a Christian and you shouldn't do that, they're saying, oh, you're being legalistic. Well, seems like the Apostle Paul said a lot of things in the imperative mood that said you should do this and you shouldn't do that. It's not legalism. It has to do with setting the standards of the lifestyle uh, of a believer. There's some difficult passages, difficult verses in 1 John. 
that talk about the fact that if you are a believer, if you're born again, you don't sin. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands today because I think, just surveying the crowd here, that that I would say, knowing most of you, that, that you have all can remember a time when you believed the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so I would say that nearly everybody here is a believer. But I would also suggest that everybody here is a sinner. So how do we handle a verse like that, that if you are born from above... You don't sin. This is should be understood. All of these mandates should be understand understood in in light of an analogy that you have a father, the head of a household, and this father is the head of the household has set down a behavior code for his family. This is how people in this family conduct their lives. And if you break those protocols, if you break those standards then you might hear the father say, this isn't how our family lives. You don't do that if you're a member of this family. He's not saying that you're not a member of the family, that you were somehow adopted and just found on the gutter somewhere and brought into the house and uh, you're not really part of the family. He's saying that, no, uh, you're just not living or acting like a member of the family. You're not following the code of conduct that should be the standard for a member of the family. Now, that's how Paul is addressing, and John and Peter and others in the New Testament really address the Christian life. They lay down a code of conduct that we should aspire to. Now, we're going to fail. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9, not so we can uh, uh, get out of jail free, as it were, ahead of time and say, okay, well, even if I sin, it's no big deal. It is a big deal because there's always divine discipline and consequences, whether we want to admit that or not. But it is a way of recovery because God knows that we still have this nasty thing called the sin nature, and we're still going to sin. And until the day we die, we are all going to struggle with sin because there is, as Paul explains in Galatians 5, uh, 17, 18, and 19, that there is this war that we have going on inside of us because we've been given a new nature, but we still have that old nature, the sin nature, and the sin nature wars against the, the spirit, and the spirit wars against the sin nature, and that's the way it's going to be until the day we die and we are finally removed from this fallen world and this fallen body and the influence of the sin nature. But legalism isn't saying that there are standards or absolutes for the Christian life. It's a wrong approach to those standards. So I want to answer the question, what is legalism? By defining it, that legalism is at root the idea that a person's behavior influences, motivates, or causes God's gracious actions in justification, that's salvation, phase one, when we trust in Christ as Savior, or spiritual growth. It's the idea that what you do somehow is the basis for God's blessing, either giving you salvation or in the spiritual life, uh, the various blessings that go along with the spiritual life in terms of spiritual growth, that it is my behavior or your behavior that is the, the real cause of God's, of God's blessing. That's what motivates him. That's what legalism is. So you may have one person 
over here. I'm going to put them on my left hand. You got one person over here on the left hand. Remember when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, the sheep are saved, the goats are not. He puts the unsaved on the left hand. So we'll talk the, uh, the wrong person's on the left. Um, on the left you have uh, the person who is, uh, is saying, I need to pray every day. But that's in a system of thought that says, if I don't pray every day, God's not going to bless me. This is what's going to cause spiritual growth. I need to read my Bible every day. If I don't read my Bible every day, God's not going to bless me. Uh, God's not going to do anything in my life. Now, he's wrong because he's approaching it, same standards, but from a legalistic concept because he thinks that those things he does, no matter what it is, you can add a hundred other examples, but that that's what really motivates God. On the other hand, on the right-hand side, you have the believer who understands that it's all based upon God, the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Word of God in my life. I still need to make these decisions, but I do it by means of the Spirit. And it's all based on grace and that God has already blessed me with every blessing in the heavenlies. So therefore, I can't do something to get more blessing. I already have them all. I just have to realize them in my own experience. So the the grace-oriented believer is not going to get bent out of shape when he fails because he understands that that's not the basis for blessing. The basis for blessing is the work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ he possesses, not his own righteousness. And so he's, he's, we call that being grace, grace oriented. It's not legalism. And, and this person realizes that he needs to pray every day because that's our lifeline to God. And the scripture says that we're to pray without ceasing, but he doesn't do it for the same reason that this person does it. This person realizes I need to read my Bible every day. Not because by reading his Bible every day, he's going to get God to bless him. It's not some magic good luck charm or spiritual rabbit's foot. But that by reading his Bible uh, in fellowship under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, he's going to be reminded of all the wonderful things that God has done for him, provided for him, and he's going to be encouraged and strengthened as God, the Holy Spirit, uses the word in his life to remind him of what he should do. So they're both doing the same thing are saying we need to do the same thing, but one is doing it for a legalistic reason. The other one is doing it uh, out of grace orientation. So legalism is not the same as identifying specific oughts and ought-nots in the Christian life. Legalism is not the same thing as saying Christians shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, or they should do A, B, and C. That's not legalism. Legalism is making, is, uh, but what legalism is, is making non-scriptural mandates necessary, like saying that uh, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do, so I'm more spiritual. The Bible doesn't say anything about those things. I remember the very first time I got really hit with legalism. Now I'd seen a little legalism here and there when I went through seminary, and I'd seen a little legalism here or there when I uh, was, was growing up. But, but when I was first uh, looking at churches to be a pastor, and that's if you're a young, young man, young pastor, and you're looking for a church, there's a certain measure of idealism that enters in. You just think that, you know, God's going to lead me right to the to the place where, where I need to be. So I got a call from a church in Opelousas, Louisiana. And if you all have ever been over to Cajun country, you know Opelousas is uh, not only famous for being the home of Jim Bowie, but it's also uh, 
uh, was is at the heart of Cajun country, and Cajuns are almost totally Roman Catholic. So to find evangelicals, to find a Bible church in the heart of Cajun country is unusual. And so I went over there, and rather than driving down, uh, rather than driving down I-10 all the way to Lafayette and then going up to Opelousas, I thought I'd see the countryside, and I got over to Lake Charles, headed north, and I think it was Slidell, headed in from the from the west. And I got into town, and I finally, and I hadn't eaten lunch, I was starving to death, so I pulled over into a Popeye's fried chicken. I stopped, went in and had lunch and went on a few more blocks and drove to the church. And about that time, I was a little slow, but I began to realize that I hadn't seen a white person yet. And I was beginning to kind of wonder what, what it was going to be like. And I got to the church and I got to the parsonage. I went in the parsonage and it looked like it, it had been built by a contractor who just used his leftover parts. You would go from one room to the other, and there was a step up, a step down. Every room had different carpet. Every room had different wallpaper. And some rooms, like the master bedroom, had three different kinds of wallpaper, and a, and they didn't match or blend, and a completely different contrasting. Remember back in the 70s, they had that kind of mirror-like aluminum foil uh, type wallpaper with flocking on it? That was in the bathroom. And when you were lying in the bed, that's what you saw, and there were like horizontal stripes on one side and small flowers on the other side in the bedroom, and it was just visually an assault upon everything (laughs) that you could possibly see. So I was, oh, Lord. You know, I said I would serve you, and I'll go anywhere, but I'm going to wonder what you have in mind. And then I was supposed to meet with the deacons. So went over to the church about 3 o'clock to meet with the deacons. And the first question they asked me was a good question. What's your philosophy of ministry? Great question. We talked about that for a while. The second question, now you know that the second question is going to be one of the things that's really important to them. And they wanted to know if I would preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing. We argued about that for the next three hours. Because they came out of a Roman Catholic background where it was pure antinomianism and everybody did whatever they wanted to. They just showed up and and uh, said a few Hail Marys on Sunday and that was it. And there was no emphasis on spiritual life. So they went all the way to the other end and it was just pure, pure legalism. And uh, that was the first time that I crossed the Sabine River and got out of the car and kissed the ground of Texas. <laughs> When I returned and God had his will and all of that because I got a letter about two weeks later that said that God had informed them that I was not the right choice for that church. (laughs) And I knew that he had because he had informed me of the same thing. So, (laughs) but too often that's, that's how, that, that's what, what happens in churches. There, there's this, this wrong approach to the oughts and the ought nots of, of, of the Christian life. And they often make non-scriptural mandates absolutes. Legalism in the spiritual life may emphasize the same absolutes, like pray, read your Bible, go to Bible class all the time, but legalism does it in the power of the flesh, and, and the spiritual life as we understand it does many of the same things by the power of the Spirit. 
What legalism does is it reduces the spiritual life to nothing more than a morality system, sort of a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps approach to the Christian life. So when we get into the heart and soul of what I'm teaching this morning, I want you to understand that this is not legalism. Everything I say is understood. This is how we are to think as we are in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, being filled by means of the Spirit, walking in the truth, and and abiding in Christ. And when we sin, we get out of fellowship, and we're not doing any of those things anymore, but we can fool everybody, including ourselves, by a pseudo-spirituality of simple morality that's generated by the flesh. This was the problem in Galatians. In Galatians 3, 3, Paul said, Have you begun by the Spirit, and now you're being perfected or matured by the flesh, by the sin nature, because they had bought into the same kind of legalistic idea from the Judaizers who came through there that said that, okay, it's great that you trusted Christ as your Savior, but now that you're saved, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow the Mosaic law. You need to become a proselyte to Judaism, and if you don't, then God's just not going to bless you. There was no understanding of the role of God the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a different problem, as we've seen in Colossians, Colossians, and I'm just going to hit this very quickly so that that those of you who have been here uh, will be reminded of how we have reached the point where we are in this study. And those of you who haven't been been here will have to run a little fast to, to catch up here, but it will help you understand the foundation that we've already laid for getting to uh, the point of what I'm looking at this morning. The problem that... Um, the problem that Paul's dealing with in Colossians is what they've decided to do is to uh, look at various systems of legalism that come out of a mysticism background, Greek philosophy background, a mystical Judaism background, um, and they've incorporated that as the standard for living the Christian life. And in essence, what Paul is saying is you've cut yourself off from Christ, who's the head of the body. You're trying to live as if you are alive and drawing your sustenance from the head, but you've been spiritually decapitated because you're, in the language of Galatians, you're trying to reach maturity by the flesh. So by cutting themselves off from Christ, they're not under the authority of Christ. They're not receiving nourishment from Christ. They're not going to receive their spiritual growth from Christ. They're not going to receive strength from Christ. And this is going to put in jeopardy all future rewards, privileges, and blessings in the kingdom. What Paul is saying is that there is a solution. When you recover, you have to understand and put into practice in your thinking certain things. You have to understand your position in Christ. That's fundamental in Paul's thinking. I've always said that, but I don't think I've realized it or I'm getting hit with it afresh in this study. Paul is saying if you don't understand what we have in Christ then you're just never going to get very far in the Christian life because it's not complicated. But you have to understand that we've already been given these things in Christ. These possessions are ours. We don't have to uh, reform our lives so that God will give them to us. They're ours. We just have to learn how to implement them in terms of our thinking. We need to learn to live in light of their reality and develop a mindset based on that reality And then, as he puts it, we need to put to death the sin in our life. And that's the question that I I brought us to, is what does this mean to put to death the sin in our life? 
Last time I had these verses up, I added Colossians 3.5 to it because I'm emphasizing something a little different this time. Last time I was focusing on the, the language of putting on and putting off. And we went to uh, Romans 6 looking at that. But this morning I want to emphasize what is said here in terms of putting to death and having already put to death the sin nature and what that means, this putting to death terminology that we have been crucified uh, with Christ, as Paul said, says early in Galatians, uh, in Galatians 2.20. So in Colossians 2.11 and 12, he starts off when he's reminding them of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, he reminds them that we have been buried with him in baptism. Now, since God isn't in the business of burying life people, uh, we recognize that burial follows death, and so what's implied by being buried with him in baptism is a uh, preceding death, which is our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, which is part of what uh, is referred to in Scripture as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 2.20, or excuse me, Colossians 2.20, Paul says, therefore, if you died, and the implication there from that first-class condition is, and you did, if you died, and you did with Christ, then in uh, Colossians 3.3 he says, for you died. See, in Colossians 3.3 there's no if clause. He said, for you died. He's stating the reality of that. We have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Well, if I've died, why do I have to put to death the members? See, that's that tension we see in Scripture that some people don't get. It's the difference between our positional reality of the fact that we have died to the sin nature, but the reality is it's still there. It's just that the tyranny of the sin nature has been broken. And so experientially we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh in an ongoing manner as part of our spiritual life. And this is related to the idea of putting off uh, the sin nature that's going to be explained further in Colossians 3, 8 and following. Just to remind you on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 3, 27 and 28 tells us that all of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior have been baptized into Christ, and thus we have put on Christ. That putting on of Christ is a positional reality that happened at the instant of salvation. And a result of that is that now there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, in terms of the fact that these these actualities are not relevant to our spiritual status before God, but we're all one. We are united in Christ. Our individual identity isn't removed, but we are now a basically a new team. We are therefore not just a bunch of individuals anymore. We have our individual role to play on the team, but we are a new team. We're one in Christ, and we have to learn what that, that means. We have put on Christ and it's, what's interesting is uh, Paul uses a middle voice there which indicates that um, we did something to cause that to happen. We don't put on Christ. God puts Christ on us in the act of baptism by the Holy Spirit, but we activate the process by tr- when we trust in Christ as Savior. The instant you put your faith and trust in Christ, a series of events happened 
that were started by your faith in Christ, not caused by it, but started by it. Once you put your faith in Christ, God then says he's going to do certain things for you so that that these, these automatically domino in the instant that you put your trust in Christ. And so by putting your trust in Christ, in essence, what Paul is saying, you did, you caused this to happen for yourself. Now I'll show you why I'm emphasizing both the passive and active involvement of our will at that point in, in just a minute. That'll make a little more sense. So this is depicted, as I've showed you in the past, by this chart. On the left, we have our eternal realities, our positional truth. On the right, we'll develop the temporal realities. This is called by some identification truth. It's understanding what we have in Christ because in the act of baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are one in Christ. We have put him on. We are intimately and integrally united with Christ. It can't be separated at all. So this is our position in Christ. Now, this is what Paul's referring to in Colossians 2.20 when he says, therefore, if you died with Christ, and you did. And then in Colossians 3.3, he's going to develop this and saying, for because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, that's our unity. We are in Christ, and so we're hidden with Christ in God. From there, I took us to Romans 6, which is the fundamental passage for understanding. This is, it's taught other places. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, as I pointed out a minute ago, is taught in Galatians, taught in other passages. But it's in Romans 6 that it's developed. That Paul says, do you not know? See, once again, it's not, do you not feel? It was just, it felt so good to be in churches. I just felt like I worshiped God. I just cringe when I hear people say that. Again and again, we, we find in Scripture words like know, understand, believe, think, reckon. Don't you know this, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And I pointed out that the literal meaning of baptize is to plunge or immerse, but it was used in a figurative way many times in the language to indicate an identification. Something goes through a transition. It's identified with a new reality. And so we're baptized or identified with Christ in his death. And then in uh, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we were buried with him. See, we die with him, we buried with him, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The resurrection connects to understanding we have a new life, and there is this enormous event that occurred that separated us completely and totally from everything we were before we were saved. That is what Paul means by the old man sometimes. It's all, and he does it here in Romans 6, all that we were before we were saved. Now we've got a new life, and we need to live in, in light of that new life. For he says, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and we have, first class condition, certainly we, shall, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection because we know something. Again, we get back to no, 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 no. Understand this. Get this beaten into your brain. Because you know this, that our old man, that's everything that we were before we were saved, was crucified with Christ. 
That ended it. That that doesn't mean that that we don't have a sin nature because old man isn't just a sin nature. It's everything you were as an unregenerate person. The old man was crucified with him that the body of sin... See, the old man is different from the body of sin. Body of sin here refers to the sin nature. The old life is crucified, it's dead, so that eventually the body of sin, the sin nature might be done away with. That doesn't happen until ultimately until we're glorified at the point of either the rapture or our own physical death and we're separated from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. That the body of sin might be done away with or abolished. It's the same Greek word there that's used of uh, when the temporary gifts are abolished. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues don't exist anymore. So there's a real finality that he's talking about there that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For, he says, he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, notice this death terminology. We, Our old man was crucified with him. For he who has died... See, Paul goes back and forth between cru- the term crucified and death because crucifixion is what caused the death. Death is the result of crucifixion. So they're intimately connected, but each is focusing on a slightly different aspect of it. Uh, the term crucifixion brings to mind that this is something that is related to what Christ did on the cross, and the death is emphasizing the complete separation from that which went on before. But they happen at the same time because people who get crucified die. Can't avoid that. He who has died has been freed from sin. Now, we still sin, but we don't longer have to. Before you were saved, you just had your sin nature, and that was it. But after you're saved, you have a new regenerate nature, and you're indwelt, and you can be filled by God the Holy Spirit. So you have the option to walk by the Spirit, and no unbeliever can do that. All you could do before you were saved was live on the power of the sin nature. You produce good things, you produce bad things, but whatever you did, no matter how good and wonderful and religious it was, it just all came out of that nasty, dead sin nature. So Paul's saying, for or because he who has died, that is, died positionally by identification with Christ in his death on the cross, has been freed from sin. Now, this is the Greek word apothenesko, and I'm just bringing that in because this word, to die, is used in relation... There's a couple of different words for dead. We're going to look at one in a minute, a different one in a minute in Colos- from Colossians. But they're basically synonyms, but they emphasize something a little, a little bit different. So Paul says in Romans 6, 8, Now, if, and we did, we died with Christ. Why did we die with Christ? Because we were crucified with him. We're identified with his crucifixion so intimately that we are said to have died to everything that went before when we believed on him. Now, Paul comes to a conclusion. He says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So that death has an implication of new life. That's what Paul's going to develop, especially when he gets to Romans chapter 8. But notice the similarity in the language with Colossians 2.20. In Colossians 2.20, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ. Same phrase. So we can connect these two passages because they're both talking about the implications of having already died with Christ 
when we're identified with him through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says uh, in Colossians 2.20, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is a living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Now, some people may say, but Paul's got regulations. Yeah, but they're not the same regulations. The the regulation Paul has are done within the framework of walking by the Spirit, as we'll see in just a minute in uh, Romans 8. So in the conclusion of the first part of Romans 6, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead to sin. Now, reckon's a good old English word. And if you're not from the South, it may be a little foreign to you, but it's really an old English word. Read Shakespeare sometime. You'll find it a lot, and it means to think. The, the Greek word that it translates is the word legizomai, which means to reason to a conclusion from the uh, root of the noun logos and that initial syllable in logizomai and logos is the basis for our English word logic. So what Paul is basically saying here is logically, on the basis of what I've just taught you, logically reason to the conclusion in your mind that you are dead to sin and that a separation has occurred from you in relation to your obedience to the tyranny of the sin nature and not just reckon yourselves dead to sin. That's only the first half. That's the negative side. But reckon yourselves, consider yourselves to be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice it's part of being in Christ. You are now alive to God. Live on the basis of the fact that you are now alive. You were dead before. You only thought you were alive. You only thought that, that like any unbeliever or anybody operating on the sin nature, that when you engage in those lust patterns of the sin nature, that the sin nature deceives you into thinking, makes you feel really alive, that that's just a counterfeit. But real life is when you're walking and living your life on the basis of your this new reality. So what are we to do? We're not to let sin reign in our mortal body. That's the physical body. The physical body, as Paul develops on into Romans 8, just doesn't connect with spiritual truth. And it has to be controlled because the sin natures in the body has to be controlled by your mind implementing the realities of your spiritual position in Christ. So where Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's not legalism. If you want to grow and experience the life, the full life that, that God has for you and me in the Christian life, then, then this is what we have to do. You can't say, oh, I'll just continue to sin and just confess it and I'll be in fellowship and I'm not going to worry about making those hard decisions to not do what really appeals to me and what my sin nature drives me to do, uh, I'm just going to keep losing the battle and somehow I will end up being king. No, uh, we can't let the sin nature reign. We have to let Christ and the Word of God reign in our life and thinking. We have to obey the Holy Spirit and the Word of God rather than obey the sin nature. Those, those are the options. And then Paul goes on to say, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present, them as being, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, that's a hard thing to do. 
it's not easy. That's why it takes most of our life, and hopefully we get a few steps down uh, the road before the Lord takes us home. Now, I'm going to connect this because I think Colossians helps explain this a little more. Now, the key word that we find in throughout Romans 6 has been this idea of death and crucifixion. Paul says it a little differently in Galatians 5.24. He says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this is a place where some people have just sort of misstepped a little bit. If you look at Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, you have a command to walk by means of the Spirit. It's in the present tense. And if you look at every verb all the way from Galatians 5.16 to the end of the chapter, which is all about the spiritual life and what it means to walk by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, every verb is in the present tense because it's always talking about our present walk with Christ until you get to Galatians 5.24. And this is a past tense verb. Now, some people, even within our camp, have tried to argue that, that, well, this is an, uh, a present tense use of the aorist. And I got, I've got to disagree with that because, because it stands out in this whole flow of verbs. I do this thing where in order to catch some of this, I color my verbs. And I color my present tense verbs yellow and my uh, aorist tense verbs blue. And I've got all, the, all yellow going down the page with this one word in blue right in the middle. And it just stands out. It's visually arresting. And that's one reason I do that, because you don't necessarily catch those kinds of patterns when you're, when, at least with me, when I'm reading in, a, in Greek that's a second language. And, and so the emphasis here is on what is the, the, the crucifixion of the flesh is what occurred at, at, at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if we are Christ, then that has already occurred, and this is related to what Paul had said earlier, I've been crucified with Christ. But in Galatians 2.20, it's a passive voice. In Galatians 5.24, it is an active voice. And some people have tried to make a distinction there and said, see, in Romans 6 and Galatians 2, it's passive that, that we, uh, our flesh is crucified. God performs the action. We receive the benefit of it. But Galatians 5.24 is an active voice verb, so it ought to be understood differently because uh, we are the ones performing the action. But there are many other places where Paul uses a similar type thing. We are the cause of this action because it is the instant you put your faith and trust in Christ that is what dominoes that chain of events that occurs that begins with the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So that my volition is engaged when I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's that choice that dominoes because God is going to instantly baptize me by means of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, I cause that crucifixion with Christ, but it's really God who does it. Both those things are true. Now, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5.25 that this is done by living in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, that's that new life that we have because the old man has been crucified with Christ. Let us now walk by means of the Spirit. So this brings in the right side of the chart, which is the temporal reality. We are to walk by means of the Spirit. 
We walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, which is the word peripateo, which focuses on the lifestyle. But when you get down to Galatians 5.25, it's a different word. It's a word that means walking step by step, following a path. It's often used of troops marching in ranks. And so it's emphasizing the walking, but not so much as a lifestyle, but as a step-by-step following the guidance of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. Now, back in Romans 6.13, Paul had said, Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members, that's the physical body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, when we skip to the end of the story in Romans 8, To pick up the final part of what Paul says on the spiritual life, he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's yes, he does, because we're all indwelt by the spirit from the instant of salvation. Paul then reaches the conclusion, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now, that's not talking about resurrection life or future life in terms of uh, resurrection or rapture. It's talking about experiencing the full life, the abundant life that we are to have in Christ here and now in our mortal bodies. And how do we do that? Through the Spirit. Not by going out and making ourselves be more ethical and moral, but by learning to walk by means of the Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we make these other decisions to implement the mandates of Scripture in our life. Romans 8.12, Paul says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh or the sin nature. For if you live according to the flesh or if you live according to the sin nature, you will die. That's not eternal spiritual death. It's you're going to experience carnal death. You're just going to have a miserable life on earth because you're living in carnality. And you're not going to experience the rich spiritual life that Christ has for us. And then he says, for if you live, uh, but if by the Spirit, see, by the Spirit, that's the key. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not talking about getting saved and going to heaven when you die. It's talking about having that real, rich, full spiritual life right here and now. When Jesus said, I came not like the thief to steal and destroy, but to give you life, that's eternal life in heaven, and to give it abundantly. That's the second category is what we're talking about here, the abundant life. He uses here the Greek word thanatao for the verb uh, to put to death the deeds of the body. But in our passage in Colossians, in Colossians 3.5, he says, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And here he uses an interesting word, necrao. And what's interesting is in the ancient world, doctors, and of course their physicians had a rather rudimentary medical practice back then, but they still use the word necrao to refer to flesh or body parts that no longer functioned. Today we use the term necrotic. Flesh that our skin that has died has become necrotic. It's no longer usable. And this is the idea that Paul has here. Put to death the members that are on the earth, like he says in 
remember back in Romans, put to death the deeds of the body, the members of the body, that physical uh, expression of the sin nature. So putting, in other words, for putting to death or to kill off something, to assassinate something, to uh, send out a search-and-destroy mission from your uh, soul by means of the Holy Spirit to destroy the practices of sin in your body. In, and that just stands for your physical existence, your physical life. In other words, we're to begin rendering the effects of the sin nature in our life and our obedience to the sin nature as necrotic tissue. It no longer functions. But we don't just go out and do it on our own. That's where legalism comes in. Legalism says, oh, you've got to do this by don't do this and do this and you'll be okay. Anybody can do that and it's miserable. But only the Christian who understands what Paul says can do it in fellowship by the Holy Spirit. And then and only then can it be done because the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately is the one who makes that happen. We are empowered by him. Now, that doesn't mean he takes over your volition. You've got to, and I've got to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I, instead I'm going to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to do what the Word of God says to do. I've still got to engage my volition. That involves self-discipline. Some people say, oh, well, that's just legalism. Well, wait a minute. Paul was the one who, who said that, that he wanted to run the race, that is life, as to win, like a contest. And in order to do that, he said he beat his body into submission. That, mean, that means that he is engaged in a struggle against his sin nature, and as much as he wants to say yes to his sin nature, he's going to exercise that discipline and say no. And I'm going to walk by the Spirit, and then the Spirit is going to deal with that, and over time, that's going to be dealt with. Jesus used the phrase, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this verse is really abused, and I'm just going to hit it briefly and tell you what it means. First of all, Jesus, when Jesus says, if you want to come after me, he's not talking about if you want to go to heaven. He's talking about if you want to be a true uh, student of Jesus and implement the Christian life. He says, first of all, you have to deny yourself. What he means by that is saying no to the sin nature, which is what I've just described. And then he says, and take up your cross and follow me. What in the world does that mean? And see, one of the things that's, that I've learned a lot in the last couple of years, and unfortunately there aren't any really good books where you go out and you can just find one resource and it'll tell you all these things. It just comes from continuous reading and studying and picking it up uh, in different places. But a lot of the things that Jesus says are misunderstood by a Greek mind and Gentile mindset because we don't understand the Hebrew idioms that underlie them. And we don't, or we don't understand enough about the original context and how these words became idioms in the, in the original or the original historical context. In the Roman Empire, if you did not submit yourself to Rome and you were a criminal by violating the laws of Rome and you violated those laws in the most extreme manner, then you were punished by crucifixion. And in order to assert the fact that you are now being forced to submit to the authority of Rome and to warn others who may be tempted to rebel against the authority of Rome, 
The criminal was required to carry his cross to the place of execution. And it was a sign that he has now been forced to submit to the authority of Rome. And you better not rebel against the authority of Rome or this is what's going to happen to you. So taking up your cross became an idiom for submitting to authority. And all Jesus is saying here is if you want to follow Jesus, just as Jesus submitted to the authority of the Father, you have to submit to the authority of Christ. I have to submit to the authority of Christ. I have to do what the Bible says to do, basically. That's what taking up your cross means, is basically you have to follow God's plan for your life, which means to do what the Word of God says to do and not do what it says not to do, just like Jesus followed the plan of God, which meant going to the cross and dying for our sins. And it is there that that power of sin is ultimately broken. So it's not legalism to deal with sin in your life. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around judging others. We all have enough problems to deal with without looking at other people, and we fail so much. But we never, no matter how much we fail, are ever justified in saying, well... I'm, I'm just, you know, that's just the way it is. I'm just going to fail. We never compromise the standard. We hold up the standard high, but we also recognize that we're always going to fail. God knows we're always going to fail. And God is not giving us an unrealistic goal. He's giving us an impossible goal because you can't do it and I can't do it, but, we can only, but the Holy Spirit can. And only when we walk by the Spirit are we then empowered to make the choice to obey the Lord. And that's what it means to take up your cross daily. So this gives us that full orb foundation for what the Scripture teaches on moving forward in the spiritual life, and we'll move forward in Colossians now that we've worked through all of this. It gives us that framework for understanding just exactly what Paul is, is telling us we need to do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word to focus on these things, to realize that we've already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You have uh, put those in our account so that we can access it by faith and by the Holy Spirit. It's not something uh, not based on legalism. It's based on your grace. But that doesn't disengage or nullify our volition, our moment-by-moment dependence and walk with you in obedience to your word. Father, we pray that there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins, my sins, everybody's sins. The only solution to have real life is to trust in Christ who died for your sins. He paid the penalty which you and I can, can never do. We can't pay that penalty. But Jesus paid it for us so that we can have it simply by trusting in him, receiving that as a free gift. And then once that happens and we have this new life in him, then there are new vistas for each one of us, new opportunities. But those are only accessed as we learn what we've been already been given and put that into implementation in our day-to-day experience. Father, we thank you for all that we've been given and pray that we might be challenged, strengthened, encouraged to press on, to fully access all that we have in Christ. We pray this in his precious name.
Amen.